You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, still in New York City, um, editor-at-large at The Diplomat and a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Joining me today is uh, a guest that we've previously had on the podcast, but somebody I'm really pleased to have back on the show. Uh, today, we have Tobias Harris, a Japan analyst at Taneo, and more importantly, author of The Iconoclast, the newest biography and most timely biography, coincidentally, of outgoing Japanese Prime Minister Abe Shinzo, who resigned at the end of August after a few weeks of rumors. And uh, first of all, Tobias, I'm very glad to have you back on the show. Welcome back. Really great to be with you, Ankit. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, and uh, I really want to congratulate you on your recent biography, which has been reviewed extremely well. Uh, full disclosure to listeners, I have not yet had the chance to read his book, but it is very much at the top of my list. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about when they can expect to uh, receive your book if they're in the United States? Sure. So it was actually supposed to start hitting booksellers in October, and given the extreme interest in the lifetime's legacy of Abe Shinzo will start shipping to booksellers, I believe, imminently, and was also told that uh, any day now the ebook will be available. Perfect. So uh, just keep a lookout. It, it will be there soon. Very good. Um, and yeah, so I'm hoping to really pick your brain on a few issues today uh, relating primarily to uh, Abe Shinzo's legacy in Asian geopolitics. And there's a lot to cover here. Uh, and obviously, Abe has been a mainstay on this podcast in many conversations, uh, certainly trade policy, uh, TPP, uh, CPTPP, uh, the whole notion of the Indo-Pacific. Uh, I don't think it's too controversial to say that there's probably a good case to be made that we wouldn't be talking about the Indo-Pacific in the way that we do without a lot of the intellectual work that was happening in Japan. Um, I mean, really going back to Abe's first term, uh, first non-consecutive term as prime minister back in 2006, and his speech to the Indian parliament and this notion of the confluence of the two seas in the Asia Pacific. Uh, but before I get ahead of myself, Tobias, uh, I want to sort of ask you to kind of give us your elevator pitch for how you view Abe's legacy as, as a foreign policy prime minister in Japan, obviously longest serving prime minister in Japan's post-war history. Uh, what's your assessment of um, how how we'll come to remember his uh, influence on Japan's role in Asia and the world? Well, I, you know, I think it, we can start by looking at a number, and, and I think it's a number that captures everything. And that is, is that in just under eight years as prime minister, he took 81 foreign trips. And my, I believe the count for the number of countries he visited on those trips was something like 170. I mean, he was everywhere, was uh, you know, peripatetic, was, you know, he wanted to be, you know, to show physically that Japan was present in the world. You know, Japan would show up, would make its voice heard, you know, would come often with, you know, money in hand and, you know, its companies would, would be there too if they weren't already there. And, and that that was, I think, what was different in a way that was never, uh, you know, never really seen before. You know, having a government that was around for this long meant that, you know, from the very beginning, they articulated a strategy and, you know, went about pursuing that. And, you know, Abe being present was a big part of realizing that strategy in the world. And, and that, I think, was a phenomenon from Japan that you've never really seen before. You know, that, that consistency, um, you know, our, you know, the clear articulation of, of purpose and then following through from, you know, the, the prime minister down, uh, that, that really, I, I think, uh, the tone was entirely different 
for his tenure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, if there's a theme to Abe's, uh, particularly his second term, uh, you know, he he takes over again in 2012, uh, a little more, um, a little over a year after Japan uh, is still in the process of recovering from the 2011 Tohoku earthquake and tsunami. And the theme was really that, you know, Japan under Abe would be back. It would be back in many ways, economically, as a power, as, as an influential voice on the world stage, as a multilateral force for good. On all of those measures, um, how, how well do you think Abe fared? I mean, maybe let's start by talking about trade, which I think is actually a very important part of a lot of what Abe had to contribute, uh, certainly uh, in the Asia-Pacific and in processes like the Trans-Pacific Partnership and what eventually became the uh, the CPTPP. Uh, how, how do you assess uh, Abe's, um, Abe's performance on, on that front? Sure. So, I mean, you know, it really in some ways is the most remarkable change that you saw uh, from the Japanese government over the course of his tenure, that that Japan was not just going to be playing a defensive role or supporting role or, or sometimes an obstructionist role in trade negotiations, that you know, from you know, the first months in office, there was a commitment to Japan playing a constructive role in a, in a regional multilateral trade agreement, even if it meant defying Abe's own base. And that really, I think, is the most important thing. It wasn't just that he did this. It was that he was elected with a big majority in December 2012. But to some extent, that majority rested on opposition to the outgoing Democratic Party of Japan's support for you know, potentially joining negotiations for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. There were a lot of farmers who actually in 2009 had maybe had crossed lines and had been willing to vote for the DPJ. DPJ. And by 2012, they they felt betrayed, and the, the the LDP picked up on that, ran against it, and so you get this majority that at least in part has a lot of people who are anti TPP. But by March of 2013, you know, Abe felt that he got the reassurances from the Obama administration that he needed that uh, there would be certain carve-outs for Japanese agriculture that he wouldn't have to make a number of commitments beforehand. And by March, you know, Japan joins, and you know he says this has to be done. This you know, there, you know Japan has no choice. And you know of course it's part of this a broader. Um, strategy of recognizing that Japan has no alternative but to ensure that the U.S. is committed politically, military, and economically to the region. But really making you know, that commitment, uh, taking on domestic uh, interest, even within his own party, and then doing it over and over again as the TVP talks went on. And you know, at various points uh, in that process, you had people within the LDP try to derail the process. Um, and, and he overcame that resistance, got, you know, actually got a signed deal with the U.S. Japan at least was able to ratify it. And then in 2017, even more remarkably, you know, you have Abe saying, well, without the U.S., TVP is meaningless. And so we're not going to invest in it. And, you know, U.S. pulls out. And a couple months later, you know, Abe changes course. And, you know, Japan basically, I'm not going to say single-handedly, did require, you know, help from, from other partners, but basically ended up as the leader uh, of a revived TPP, the CPTPP, and, and bringing it back and bringing it to the finish line um, in this revised form, um, and particularly in a revised form that made it possible, I think, in a number of ways for the U.S. potentially to come back under uh, maybe a different administration. Uh, and, and that took fight, you know, fighting within the group of you know, sur the surviving 11 members. Uh, I mean, a remarkable uh, progression from you know, having to overcome resistance to his, you know, within his own party just to join the talks, to Japan leading the talks kind of back uh, back into reality from you know from what seemed like oblivion, and um, and then you know, concluding a deal with the EU, uh, articulating. Uh, 
principles when it was hosting the G20, the, you know, the Osaka track on data governance. I mean, just Japan becoming confident speaking on, uh, you know, the importance of, of a rules-based multilateral trading order. Uh, that meant a remarkable transformation from where Japan had been in the not too distant past. Yeah. I mean, I remember pretty vividly uh, when Abe came to Washington in February 2017, right before his trip to Mar-a-Lago uh, with President Trump, uh, which was rudely interrupted by a North Korean missile launch. But um, I remember it actually jumped out to me because um, everybody was wondering how um, Abe, at the time Theresa May, how all of America's allies would manage an American president with whom they had serious philosophical disagreements on matters, including trade and the rules-based order. Um, and Abe held his own. I remember him you know, defending Japan's view of the value of a multilateral rules-based trading order while standing next to Donald Trump at the podium. Um, and that I thought was remarkable. Um, and I'm trying to kind of, you know, steer the conversation now a little bit towards the U.S.-Japan alliance and the U.S.-Japan relationship under Abe. Uh, obviously, it is Japan's most important diplomatic relationship. The cornerstone of Japanese defense strategy uh, is the alliance with the United States. And, um, Abe certainly, like many other U.S. allies, discovered this to be a difficult task. But, I mean, I, I bet if you would poll other American allies and you ask them about how Abe personally fared in managing the alliance under Trump, my thinking is that he would get a fairly good grade. What's what's your assessment of how Abe managed the Obama to Trump administration uh, within the alliance context? Yeah, so, I mean, you so you... Abe takes power. He's got this commitment. You know, he wants. You know, he knows that Japan really has no no alternative to the U.S. being engaged in the region. Um, you know, any alternative to that is is you know, considerably less attractive. And you know, he's willing to invest uh, first with you know with Obama, who is a leader. You know, I think personality wise, they didn't gel very well. I think there were lots of people in the Obama administration who were not thrilled to see Abe come back, and you know, feared that having you know this this outspoken nationalist in Japan. That would upset a lot of the plans for the rebalance and it would be a gift to China and it would make life difficult with the South Koreans. And I think for the first year, certainly, uh, you know, at least until he goes to Yasukuni, I mean, I think that's true. Uh, and, and there's a lot of work that has to be done, you know, just to get over the hump um, on you know, some of the history issues. But I think post 2013, post that Yasukuni visit in December 2013, I think something actually fairly remarkable happened. I mean, I think you've got you know, a, a commitment on both sides and you know, both governments to really focus on, you know, the fact that they had tremendous shared strategic interests and you know, really tried to not let uh, some of these tricky history issues get in the way of pursuing those interests. And so on the one hand, uh, you know, they really invest uh, in security cooperation. I mean, that you get in 2014, you know, a pretty strong statement from Obama himself on the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty applying to the Senkakus, you have uh, the revision of, of the guidelines uh, for defense cooperation in 2015. Uh, on Abe's side, you have him spending quite a lot of political capital first to change the interpretation of the Constitution to allow um, Japan to engage in, in collective self-defense in a way, you know, so that you know, Japan could actually contribute, uh, at least in certain scenarios, to, to come to the aid of uh, the U.S. military in the event of a crisis. Um, actually, even before that, you know, Abe... Uh, spent some political capital getting a an upgraded law for state secrets that led to some pretty big protests and, and also was uh, welcomed by Washington but required uh, quite uh, an exert you know an expense he, he basically had to use a good chunk of political capital that he had earned uh, during his first year from from doing abenomics and so you know, you had a number of steps taken by both governments to shore up defense cooperation 
you had you know tri- uh, you know in TPP negotiations you basically had a bilateral FTA that solved a lot of the longstanding issues in U.S.-Japan trade negotiations you know going back decades. Um, so you you got that done. You you had I think Abe appreciated in Washington in ways you know and I think symbolized by him you know becoming the first prime minister to address a full joint session of Congress in 2015. And at the same time, you also I think had uh, maybe somewhat unrecognized or underrecognized maybe, but an an attempt maybe by both administrations to find a way to talk about history issues in Asia and historical memory without finger without as much finger pointing without. Um, uh, an approach that got Japan into a, or got Abe, I should say, really to be specific, into a defensive crouch, you know, where he feels the need that he has to show his independence by going to Yasukuni or, or doing these other gestures. And so on Abe's end, you get a statement on the uh, 70th anniversary of the end of the war in uh, 2015 that is pretty mild. I mean, I think compared to what people had expected, uh, ended up being uh, pretty inoffensive. And, and, you know, there were some re- retrospectives this year and, and really, um, I mean, it's it's remarkable compared to what people had feared. Just how, um, just just how, you know, he didn't really touch any of the hot button issues that I think people had worried about. And then in twenty December of twenty fifteen, you got um, an agreement on the uh, the comfort women with South Korea. That you look, you get an apology from Abe, uh, a new grant of money. Uh, not a perfect agreement, but I, I wrote at the time. You know, if you think you're going to get a better deal from Abe. Uh, or I should say South Korea thought it was going to get a better deal from Abe, let alone a subsequent Japanese leader, you know, if this deal somehow didn't stick. Um, you know, I, I think that was that would have been a mistaken impression on the part of the South Koreans, and they might be in a, in a position to learn that now, um, you know, now that, that the Moon administration walked away from the 2015 agreement. Um, but, I mean, that was still a change of, uh, of, change of tone um, from Abe, you know, you didn't just you just didn't see the same kind of provoc you know uh, tendency to uh, provoke on these issues as you saw earlier in his career. I mean, it just you know there wasn't mm-hmm. as much um, pressing for you know new textbooks that that um, emphasized a nationalist approach to history. You just it was just not how he um, how he addressed these issues, and and I think it's actually a sign of how he grew in office that you know, he did recognize that there were bigger issues. There were you know that. Uh, Japan's security in the region required um, a, a, maybe a more um, cold-blooded approach uh, you know, to the world that Japan was facing, and, and that he had to be willing to set some of these issues aside, whatever his personal thoughts. And I think you know this this process with Obama was certainly a big part of that. So Obama goes to Hiroshima, Abe goes to Pearl Harbor. Um, you know, they're they're talking about historical memory and, and what happened in the past, but without being um, you know, without it being about apologies or blame or, or claiming responsibility. I mean, and, and I'm sure there, you know, good reason to think that maybe uh, a leader like Abe needs to go further and, and to really have historical justice, you have to go further. But in a, in a more practical sense, I, I mean, I, I think it still was a pretty uh, remarkable achievement, you know, certainly compared to Abe's first yeah. premiership, which ended um, in, you know, which was marred by, uh, you know, real tension between the U.S. and Japan over over historical issues. So um, that was, you know, a pretty remarkable achievement. And then, of course, the Pearl Harbor visits, you know, in Obama's kind of final weeks um, and, you know, some of the symbolic peak of what they had achieved for the last few years. And then a few weeks later, uh, you get a very different type of U.S. president. That's right. That's right. Um, before we get to the Trump administration, uh, since you, I think, walked us nicely into um, 
the history issues and the relationship with South Korea. I was wondering if I could get a little bit of your thoughts on recent events, specifically the fallout of the South Korean Supreme Court decision uh, regarding wartime forced labor and the ensuing um, steps that the Japanese government took and really the total collapse in Japan-South Korea relations. Um, you know, I think that has been very disappointing for a lot of folks in D.C., uh, particularly, I mean, I think one of the one of the major accomplishments of the Obama administration, especially towards the end, was the ability to foment some kind of trilateral cooperation. Uh, Tony Blinken, as deputy uh, secretary of state, uh, met, um, I believe, a few times with his Korean and Japanese counterparts in a trilateral context. Uh, the first meeting between conservative South Korean President Park Geun-hye and Abe was under the auspices of the Nuclear Security Summit, uh, with Obama really stewarding that process for the two of them. Uh, but now I think we're in a place where Japan-South Korea relations are, I think, at a noticeably really, I mean, just like way lower than they had been throughout the entirety of um, Abe's administration, certainly. How do you assess uh, the long-term uh, ramifications of of what's happened uh, under, under Moon and uh, Abe's final years? Do you think this will be something that uh, just becomes a structural condition for Japan uh, in the in the in the coming years and potentially even decades uh, in Northeast Asia. Just this very difficult relationship with South uh, with South Korea. Uh, how do you how do you view the longer term effects of this? It's and certainly one of the biggest, I think, uh, black marks on his record. And and I want to you know be clear what I mean by that. But but I mean it, it's there's no question as, he, as Abe leaves office uh, that you look at. Um, in 2018, he wins his third term, and you know he says he's going to settle the the accounts of post-war diplomacy, and you know, that in his mind did not refer to South Korea. But what we're seeing is it actually, you know, what I think lots of Japanese considered settled in 1965 when you get the Basic Treaty and the resumption of relations, and um, you know Japan giving uh, you know grants of money to help uh, Korea develop and rebuild. Um, that for South Koreans, that was not settled history that you know that was not that the chapter had not you know the book had not been closed on uh, you know on what japan uh, you know what they feel japan owes south korea and so on the one hand you can understand japan's perspective you sign a treaty you know, the treaty makes it very clear that um, you know, monetary issues are settled by this you know, japan did pay um, you know a not inconsiderable sum uh, money that did end up uh, you know, really um, helping to finance the industrialization of the South Korean economy uh, under military governments. And, you know, from the Japanese perspective, a treaty is a treaty. You know, we can't just, you know, say, well, you know, you've changed. So therefore we're going to, we're going to rip up the treaty. And I think um, on the other hand, you can also understand the South Korean perspective that, you know, this was a, a treaty made under, you know, a military government uh, under a leader who had been, who had served in the Japanese military, um, and, you know that you know, South Korea wasn't democratic; it was poor. Um, it certainly needed the money, and you know that that you know if you're looking, you're, if you're South Korean today, and you're living in a country that has, uh, you're one of the great success success excuse me, you're living in a country that's one of the great success stories of democratization and industrialization, and, and leads the world in so many ways. And I mean, certainly one um, lesson of you know the. COVID-19 pandemic is just how well governed South Korea is and that it really you know, has a state mm -hmm. that is flexible, that has learned from past, uh, you know, past incidents, whether it's, you know, an economic crisis or uh, you know, past um, uh, public health crises. I mean, it, it's really shown itself to be well governed. And so South Korean, you realize, well, I, you know, is it really fair that, um, you know, Japan was able to basically get away with, with a, 
uh, you know, to use a, a a term with a lot of baggage in Asian history, but with an unequal treaty you know, from a time where, where South Korea uh, didn't have that much of a choice. Um, and, and so you understand that people now in power in South Korea feel like that actually, you know, that there is work on, on changing the terms of the relationship. And uh, so you, so you understand where the South Koreans come from. You understand why the Japanese say we have a treaty and we can't just, you know, we can't just throw that out. Um, and, and so that's, I mean, it's, there's not an easy way around that. And, you know, it doesn't certainly doesn't help that you have you know, uh, you know more conservative leaders like Abe in Japan, who uh, you know, certainly are not eager to apologize. You know, apologize more. Who think that past Japanese leaders have apologized not enough and given enough, and you know, there's no need to do more. Um, so, I mean, it's 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 really um, it is a it is a sticky structural issue, and you realize you know that that the work that people in the Obama administration put in. Um, and, you know, and to the list you mentioned, you also had the ambassadors who I think, you know, in both countries who, who did a lot of work as well. Um, you know, a lot of that is you're trying to you know, make the best of a situation where you have um, two countries, two neighbors, two U.S. allies who in, in a lot of ways fundamentally view their relationship in different ways and, and are, uh, you know, don't necessarily look at each other and see potential allies. They see, you know, neighbors with, you know, They've had with whom they've had very difficult, uh, his, you know, very difficult past, and um, you know, just looking at the other and, and thinking that you know, the other party is, is not being fair in the relationship. It is not, um, you know, either you know, in Japan's case, I think they they think the South Koreans have not acknowledged the ways in which mm-hmm. Japan has changed since 1945. Um, it's a rivalry. And yeah, will- and, yeah, and, and I don't necessarily, you know, and, and I think um, certainly what we've seen over the last couple of years, you know, with the fallout from the, the forced labor dispute, um, is that it's exposed. I mean, beyond the issue itself, is that I think it's exposed the extent to which um, they don't necessarily even see their interests the same. There's not really the glue. I mean, they don't look at North Korea in the same way. Right. Uh, I think you know they compete economically in a number of different ways. I don't think they look at China the same ways. Um, you know, of course, they're both U.S. allies, but you know, that, you know, grouping them as U.S. allies can sometimes conceal uh, more than it reveals in, in terms of how their, how those alliances function, what they're aimed at, what their purposes are. And, um, and, and so it shows you that, I mean, there's real danger that this is not uh, a dispute that's just going to be, that you can just paper over, that there are real, um, you know, there's real long-term drift. And I think, you know, you've seen, I think even before, uh, before 2018, there were, there were already signs that uh, that corporate Japan was disengaging from South Korea. That didn't it didn't see it as uh, you know as important a market. And after you know if they have to worry about expropriation risk because of you know more of these lawsuits that you know that are in the pipeline, if they have to worry about boycotts, um, you know that it just looks like a less attractive place for Japanese business to be, and a less attractive place for Japanese tourists to go. Mm-hmm. Who knows what you know tourist patterns are going to look like. Um, after this year, but uh, you know, there, there's a real uh, danger, I think, of the two countries uh, drifting apart. And you know, Abe's place in this. You know, clearly, these issues are bigger than him, and they're bigger than Moon. I mean, you know, this is this is about really the two peoples and kind of dominant tendencies within the two publics. And you know, to some extent, the leaders reflect that rather than than create those conditions. So, um, you know, we can't just say, you know, if only Abe you know, did, were different or if Abe were replaced. Um, or if Moon were replaced, you know, that things would be easier. You know, I don't necessarily think that's true. Um, I mean, I do wish that Abe had 
get a little more creative. Um, you know, and, and I think that's where his, you know, that's where really he, um, you know, he's at fault that I, you know, I think he, um, opted for a course of, um, uh, basically he wanted, um, an unconditional surrender on, on South Korea's part. You know, he wanted, um, you know, a diplomatic settlement that reinforced the 65 treaty. And, Another loaded term from Asian history. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, and, I mean, you realize you're, you're stepping on, on yeah. some pretty, um, uh, troubled uh, kind of psychic uh, psychic terrain right right um, i think um yeah i mean you know speaking of um creativity i mean i'd love to talk more about the south korea japan um relationship but we just gotta move on to cover uh, a few other issues including um you know when it came to creativity uh you know something i'll remember is uh abe like so many people in 2016 um committed the diplomatic faux pas of um you know assuming that Hillary Clinton would win in the U.S. election. And of course, he finds himself... I was actually in Tokyo just, uh, I believe, two days after the election in 2016. I, I flew to Tokyo and I was talking to folks, you know, shell-shocked in, uh, in Kasumigaseki about the election result. And of course, Abe shows up in New York, uh, golf club in tow, and begins his uh, very uh, interesting personal relationship with Donald Trump, which, uh, you know, manifests a few months later at their uh, Mar-a-Lago summit, uh, among other things. And uh, generally keeps the U.S.-Japan relationship on the right track, of course, with bumps in the road like uh, any alliance. Um, but I'm wondering um, how how you see the ways in which Abe uh, and the Abe cabinet uh, have dealt with the Trump administration. Uh, a lot of American allies, you know, there's sort of two models of how uh, American alliances have coped with uh, Trump being the bull in the China shop of American of continuity in American foreign policy. They're sort of the the german model of you know standing up for values and interests in a way that might not please washington and the japanese model which uh, i think some people would describe as a little bit too accommodating to trump's whims at times uh, but it seems to have worked for tokyo uh, so far i mean there has been hedging behavior japan's been reassessing its own um, defense needs and, and and policies of course a lot of that is not due exclusively to trump there are other developments in the region including uh, North Korea, the um, the modernization of the Chinese military. But um, what's your sort of 30,000-foot uh, take on Abe's handling of Trump? So, you know, I think it actually in some ways starts with the public. I mean, I, I think, you know, you look at a country like Germany and, and some other Western European democracies or Canada, I mean, I think there's an expectation in some ways that, um, you know, that the leaders do stand up to Trump. They do stand up for uh democratic values and, and push back, you know, when he, um, you know, when he questions the alliances or what the alliances have achieved or what, you know, why they exist. Um, I think, you know, certainly polls say, you know, I don't think the Japanese public necessarily likes Trump, but I also don't think they were expecting or would reward Abe for standing up to Trump in the way that, um, you know, some other leaders have, you know, that the expectation you know, pretty much always you know, from the public for, for Japanese prime ministers is, you know, find a way to get along with the U.S. president. And if you can't do that, um, you know, you pay the price. And, and you know, just look at what happened to, uh, to Hatoyama-san back in, back in 2009, 2010. So, you know, you, getting the U.S.-Japan relationship um, right is, is pretty much the first order of business. And so we should flag that for when we get around to, uh, to Abe's successor. Um, and, you yeah, so... You know, most presidents have not had to do that under circumstances quite the same as uh, as Abe did after 2016. But I mean, the task the task was the same. I mean, the challenge was the same. Uh, and, and you know, ultimately, I think 
the way you can look at the last few years is that whereas the first part of Abe's tenure when he's dealing with Obama, you know, you did see, you know, a, a I think a tremendously creative period as we've discussed in, in the Alliance and you know, finding new ways to deepen cooperation. And I think a lot of what's happened um, during the Trump years has been a little more defensive, you know, preserving as much as you can of what had been achieved before, still pursuing this goal of making sure the U S is engaged politically, economically, militarily. You know, I, I think at various times, I think Abe has tried to change Trump's mind, although over time it seems like he's done less of that. And it's more just, um, you know, making sure that, that, you know, Japan's voice is heard uh, from time to time and that you know, Trump looks favorably and calls Abe his friend. Um, but, I mean, it, it does seem a lot of what, you know, certainly in the first year, I think a lot of what Abe did was trying to deflect um, U.S. You know, demands for uh, you know, trade talks that you know, would force Japan to make some tough concessions, um, you know, maybe figuring out you know, if Japan could get away with reviving TPP even with the U.S. outside of it. And... Um, and so basically that first year, I think Japan ended up being uh, an off the radar screen. You know, I think there was more attention on other parts of the world and, and China. And, um, and so Japan, I think, was able to escape Trump's attention for that. And then, you know, it sort of gradually, I think the focus shifted to Japan and, and it you know, became harder for Japan to escape. And you know, once you get the threat of auto tariffs, for example, you know, I think that's what got Japan to the table for a bilateral FTA finally after, you know, the Abe government saying they wanted no part of it. Um, so it's not that Abe avoided, uh, you know, entirely avoided negative uh, developments in the relationship. I mean, I, you know, I think things did happen that they would have preferred not to happen. Uh, you know, I think they would have preferred the U.S. to stay in TPP and, and not have to deal with um, a bilateral FTA. Um, I don't think, you know, I don't think Abe changed Trump's mind as far as you know, his view of the alliance and you know, viewing Japan and other U.S. allies as taking advantage of the United States. But, you know, I, I do think he managed, at least for the last, you know, better part of the last four years, to, to limit the damage that could do and, and uh, at least, you know, keep up the appearances, you know, that there's no question about the U.S. commitment to Japan's security. I think, you know, it's created room for alliance managers to continue to um, work at the relationship at you know, the working level and the military to military level and, and all of that um, has, uh, you know, I think been important. And it's also worth mentioning also that I think as far as Tokyo is concerned, um, at least in certain parts of the Japanese government, I think they look at the Trump administration and its approach to China over the last several years. And I think they're thrilled. You know, there was this essay in the American interest earlier this year by an anonymous Japanese official talking about how pleased they were, um, you know, with the, with the, hardline approach that you've seen from the Trump administration. I mean, we can talk some more about that essay if you want. Um, I think it has some problems. But, you know, the point is, I think there are people in Tokyo who uh, don't see Trump as a problem at all. I mean, maybe he's a little unpredictable. He's a little different than earlier U.S. presidents. But um, that, you know, that there's plenty for them to like and, and plenty, of that, you know, plenty for them to be satisfied with. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're having this conversation on September 8th. And September 14th, we're looking forward to an LDP leadership election. And all the data right now points to a clear successor, uh, a familiar name to uh, anybody uh, dealing with the Kante under Abe, uh, Suga Yoshide, the chief cabinet secretary for years, uh, appears very likely to inherit the prime ministership in Japan. Um, the reason I'm getting here, I know there's a lot more to talk about, about um, Abe's legacy, uh, but just in the interest of time, Tobias, I do want us to uh, talk a little bit about what we are likely to see. Um, 
obviously the conditions under which Abe, uh, sort of the, sh the short-term conditions are uh, under which he resigned, obviously um, not uh, sort of anticlimactic given everything uh, else during his tenure. Um, obviously his health issues uh, became a, an obstacle that he could no longer um, ignore. And of course, 2020 has been a disappointing year for Japan as it has been for so many countries around the world, but especially uh, Japan, which had been looking forward to hosting the Olympics, uh, which again, if we go back to that theme of uh, post-2012 Abe really being about Japan's rejuvenation and Japan coming back on the world stage, it is probably not the note on which Abe was looking to um, end, end his term. But in any case, um, tell us a little bit about uh, the sort of the competition that we've seen play out at the highest levels of the LDP for the last um, few weeks. And um, what can we expect if indeed uh, Suga does become the next prime minister of Japan? So with um, a short six-day race, um, I mean, the race is, is virtually won. I mean, Suga has uh, virtual, virtually uh, all of the LDP's factions behind him, uh, five of the seven major factions, and the last two are, are headed by his uh, contenders in the race. So basically all the factions that were up for grabs are, in, are behind him. You know, most of the LDP members not in factions are behind him. He has soared in the polls after... I think being considered an afterthought in the race. Um, and so now he's the, the clear first choice, I think of a majority of members of the LDP and, and increasingly, I think members of the general public look at him uh, favorably as Abe's successor. So I think we can say pretty safely, I mean, something very big and unexpected would have to happen in the next six days for that to change. Um, you know, that we're going to see a, a Suga administration. Now, um, until, you know, until very recently, it, a Suga administration seemed unlikely. And had Abe survived until the end of his term next year, uh, I, I don't know if we would have seen a Suga administration. I mean, it does seem that he um, has, you know, he's kind of stepping in as the, the you know, the relief pitcher, um, you know, taking the ball and, and he's going to pick it up. But, um, I, I, you know, I think the first thing to say about him is that people should not assume that he's... Um, that he's just going to be a caretaker. He's going to serve a year until Abe's term is supposed to end, and then the LDP will have another election, and there'll be generational change, and it'll be someone else. I mean, he is a little, he's on the older side for a, uh, a Japanese, or would be uh, on the older side for a Japanese prime minister. He'll be 72 at the end of the year. So, I mean, that's, I mean, older, you know, than Abe has been uh, the start of both of his premierships. I mean, you haven't had that many, uh, remarkably enough, you haven't had that many uh, septuagenarian uh, Japanese prime ministers, but he's still, I mean, he's still, I think, young enough that he could serve at least a full term. And you know, I don't think there'd be any um, question about his fitness to do that. And the thing I think that, that people are realizing and have realized over the last couple of weeks as he's emerged as the clear favorite is that, you know, he'd been sort of subsumed in this role as chief cabinet secretary where, um, you know, very visible. I mean, he gives press conferences twice a day, you know, kind of the face of, of the government's policies in many ways. Um, but, he, you know, his own personality, his own identity was kind of subsumed in the role. And, you know, he was kind of serving at the pleasure of the prime minister. And I, I think people have now are now realizing, actually, that he has a number of political assets that he brings to the table that make him a very, uh, well, one, make him a very formidable contender you know, in this race and, you know, the way he basically cleared the field uh, before the race really had even started. Uh, but also, I, I think there are going to be a number of qualities that he brings um, to the premiership that could make him, you know, a, a very, 
capable and, and certainly capable of surviving uh, prime minister in a way that I think people had assumed was, would not, you know, you have, you, there's a, a tendency for long premierships in Japan to be followed by short-lived governments and a revolving door. And, you know, people have assumed that this would be the start of a new revolving door. I don't, I think it might be a little too uh, premature to assume that, that, you know, this is a guy who is not a hereditary politician, unlike many, many people in the LDP, most notably Abe. Um, you know, he, he worked his way up politics, starting as a very lowly secretary, was in local politics in Yokohama, you know, worked his way into the diet um, and, and really made um, a career and, and became a cabinet minister within 10 years, which is a pretty remarkable achievement, uh, you know, all things considered. And, you know, he's got relationships across the LDP uh, with the LDP's coalition partner, Komeito. He knows how to use the, the bureaucracy to command the bureaucracy. He's a master of personnel affairs and you know, knowing how to get the right people and the right jobs and making sure that people are loyal and, and do the work that's required of them. He's got, uh, he's legendary for having, you know, a, a, uh, a diligent work ethic and you know, being up and doing the work. And, um, you know, and the fact that he's not a hereditary politician, that he comes from, he came from rural Akita prefecture in Northern Japan, uh, came to Tokyo like so many of his generation, uh, went to school, then went into politics. Uh, you know, he's got, I think, a way of con maybe connecting with voters um, and, and at least connecting with voters by speaking to their interests. You know, and, and you look at his writings, you look at uh, interviews with him, you know, that he is laser focused on, um, you know, pocketbook issues, the issues that the Japanese voters mm -hmm. care about most. And, you know, throughout Abe's tenure, Suga was always there whispering in his ear, remember the economic issues that matter. Remember Abenomics. Don't forget, you know, don't get too caught up in the Constitution. Don't get too caught up in, um, you know, foreign policy. You've got to remember what voters care about most. And he's going to bring that sensibility to the premiership. And I think at this point, he's got an image of being, you know, maybe kind of a, you know, a curmudgeonly old guy and, and maybe uh, you know, sometimes in his... Uh, press conferences he looks a little curt but you know i think the japanese people are going to get a new chance to meet him and i think they've already been getting a chance to meet him and he's you know he's going to bring all this to the table i mean i think the one uh shortcoming maybe he has and, and he's really trying to make the case that this isn't quite the shortcoming it seems but that he you know he's never been a foreign minister he's never been a defense minister you know of course the chief cabinet secretary everything uh, is on his agenda and, and you know he he is coordinating the government's response to pretty much everything, but he doesn't have the extensive diplomatic experience. You know, he wasn't really traveling. He's not traveling with Abe. Uh, he's not really meeting face to face with leaders per se. Uh, you know, Suga's trying to, you know, really trying to explain that he was involved in all the foreign policy making as well. But I think there's still going to be questions about that. And I, and I think the, uh, you know, his choice to be foreign minister and defense minister, and national security advisor. I think all of those choices will be closely watched to see. Um, you know, how he's able to delegate and, and rely on uh, others to kind of help him uh, bolster that that part of his portfolio. But I, I don't think we should go into a super premiership assuming that he's not going to last. Makes sense. Um, yeah, no, we'll, we'll definitely, I mean, I'll personally be looking forward to seeing um, how a Suga cabinet fills out. I think that'll be really something to watch, especially for folks interested uh, in, in geopolitics and Japan's role. Um, Tobias, unfortunately, I have some bad news, which is that we are out of time. Um, I know that we could continue this conversation for much longer, but I will say for our listeners um, who have um, enjoyed this conversation, um, I am planning on picking up the Iconoclast as soon as I can get my hands on it, and you should too if you're interested in Abe Shinzo's legacy as a figure in Japanese politics, in Asian geopolitics, and in global affairs more broadly. Um, 
So Tobias, congratulations again uh, on the book and for uh, joining me today to offer up your analysis. Really hope to have you back on soon to uh, talk about all things Japan again. Thank you. For listeners, if you've been a subscriber to the podcast, but you haven't yet left us a review, we'd really appreciate if you could do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. We'd, uh, we'd love for you to keep up with uh, future coverage on, on this podcast. Finally, before we close, a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.